the food that we eat is pretty much just like Boston food, right? So, so our idea of Chinese food is kind of like somebody from France thinking everybody in the United States eats Boston baked beans and lobster, and that's it. And so, we here in the United States just have a very, very small、uh, idea of what Chinese cuisine actually entails. And so, really, it's it's quite different. What we call Chinese food is not really Chinese food. <laughs> Welcome to Didn't I Just Feed You, a podcast about feeding kids. Hi, I'm Stacy, and I'm Megan. If you'd like to support the podcast right now, how about leaving a rating or review wherever you listen?、It? How about it? Or share a favorite episode with a friend. These things really do help grow our "Didn't I Just Feed You" audience and help us towards our goal of helping as many busy home cooks as we possibly can. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can subscribe to our bonus feed on Apple Podcasts or join our super fan community by visiting didn'tijustfeedyou.com/backslash/community. Super fans also get those bonus episodes, plus they get an ad-free stream that you really want to check out. And there's opportunities to hang out with us if you're a super fan. So join today! Come on, you guys, you're super fans. It's time to just admit it. <laughs> join us! Join, join us! us. We—it sounds like a cult when we say join us, join us, and <laughs> join listen. Us, join us. Moving on. What are we talking about today, Stacy Billis? I'm so incredibly excited about this episode. So. First of all, let's just—I'm going to do things out of order. You're not going to approve because I know you like when things are orderly. <laughs> okay, so today we have Grace Lynn as our guest, and she is an illustrator and author. She does some children's books, YA books, and books that we've recommended before. I love her book, Dim Sum for Everyone. I've、yes. recommended it many times on many、podcast. on this podcast in articles I've written about children's books based around food. And Grace is also a podcast host. Yeah, she currently、maybe. hosts two, and she previously hosted another one. So she's just like doing all the things. She's doing all the things. She's amazing. And we're talking to her today about her new book, Chinese Menu, and. Here's the deal, guys. We get so, so, so many requests to talk about Chinese food, American Chinese food. We'll talk more about why I'm using that phrase in the conversation with Grace. We've really struggled. Like, there's no single person or authority, and there's no like 30 minute episode that's going to get everything that's important to get across. Because it's such a vast cuisine that comes from such a long, amazing, complicated culture, you know. And just like if we just talk about even just food, forget about culture and history, the regional cuisines of、right? China are so so different. So when J. Kenji Lopez Alt wrote his book Walk, we talked to him about walk cooking and walk cooking. Crosses regional cuisines, and he touches on that in his book. Today, we're talking to Grace, who is not a cooking expert, you guys, and her book Chinese Menu only has one recipe. But we still think it's a really great conversation that sets the stage for having a deeper understanding and appreciation of American Chinese food. 
Yes. And we love that her book is set up like a Chinese restaurant menu. It is a beautiful, beautiful book. But that also sort of taps in, at least for me, to some nostalgia of like going to Chinese food restaurants growing up and and that being my lens for Chinese food and what I now would call American Chinese food. Yes. And I think that's for many of us who don't have roots in China That is how we, if we're Americans, we're born here or our parents were born in another non-Asian country and we've settled in the U.S. I think for a lot of us, the Chinese menu is how we understand Chinese food. So starting to dig into the stories behind some of the most popular dishes like General Tso's chicken or Buddha jumps over the wall, like those stories on how those dishes came to be, and not just the dry history of them, but the sort of the fables that have come out of them and how they're rooted in both Chinese culture and history and also specifically the history of Chinese Americans, I think is so fascinating and also just beautiful and fun. I just realized I'm never going to have another better opportunity to ask you, what is your go-to Chinese food order? Uh, Okay, so we tend to order from, I I think because we live in New York City, I have access to lots of different kinds of Chinese food. So we really love Szechuan food. And, you know, then I'm going to use the word typical, which is probably not very informed, but Grace explains, and I don't want to spoil her story, that a lot of the American Chinese food it derives from Cantonese food. Right. So I love General Tso's chicken. I love scallion pancakes, which Grace also tells us a little bit more about. And then I also love Mapu tofu. That's mm. one of my favorites. And Danda noodles. Yes. Such. So you don't always get all of those. I mean, sometimes you do. Sometimes all of that will be on one menu, but sometimes not. Um, but what about you? Okay. I grew up a like Panda Express sweet and sour chicken and girly. I've never had Panda Express. I'm it's Isaac loves it. Yeah. There's something very nostalgic for me, but that would have been like when we were living in Reno, Nevada, mm-hmm. where we lived until I was like eight, that would have been my lens. And then when we moved to the Seattle area, when I was, you know, 10 to 19, I we lived there, there was just so much more access to it. And I have this very fond memory of my best friend in elementary school, middle school, high school, we would walk or when we had our license drive to the Chinese food restaurant in our little town that we, that I grew up in. And we would split an order of sesame chicken, which really is in some ways like sweet and sour chicken. Like you're still getting sort of the fried chicken and the sweet sauce around it. And then now as an adult, I love mushy pork. That's like my go-to order with the plum sauce on it and the like pancakes that you wrap it up in, I just think is like the very best. But my kids love sweet and sour chicken and they love beef and broccoli. So I also feel like we eat those a lot. You know what's interesting is that from fifth grade all the way through college, one of my absolute best friends I'm still in touch with today 
is first-generation Chinese-American. Her family is from Taiwan. Both of her parents are from Taiwan. And I used to spend a lot of time at her house. And I remember being completely fascinated. There was always all of these foods and ingredients. There, were, Like, no matter what time of day you went to her house, there was warm rice ready and all kinds of foods. And I feel a little cheated. I'm going to have to, I'm going <laughs> to call Kathy and I have a bone to pick with her because she was so wanting to separate herself. Mm. And I she, I don't think she was embarrassed in front of me. And maybe she wasn't embarrassed in front of anyone. I don't know if I'm like overlaying my own story here. But it was like, that was not, she just wanted to like, no, like, let's skip the kitchen. Let's go right upstairs. We're not going to hang out with my parents. We're not going to hang out with my mom. And like, when we went for snacks, we got the quote unquote American snacks. And so I really didn't get nearly the exposure that now I wish she had let me got like that's not the right way to say it but you know what I'm saying yes I wish I had some time to sit around with her mom and talk about the food and try different things but she was like no hell no but also that's so much uh like we both have teen pre-teens teens like you know yes you didn't want to hang out with anyone's parents Anyways, I would like you I didn't. I did want to try the food, though. Even then, (laughs) I was like, wait, what's cooking? All right. What's happening? Sounds like you owe her a phone call when we're done recording. I'm like, what the heck? (laughs) Maybe I'm going to record the phone call she (laughs) lets me and put it on our outtakes for our our super fans. Yes, community. community. I kind of love that. I'm going to ask her. Please get her to sign a release. Um, well, we should get into our conversation with Grace. Grace Lynn is a New York Times bestselling author and illustrator. You might know her work from some of our favorite children's titles, including Dim Sum for Everyone and A Big Moon Cake for Little Star. She's won numerous awards and honors for her work. Her novel, When the Sea Turned to Silver, was a National Book Awards finalist, and her picture book, A Moon Cake for Little Star, was awarded the Caldecott Honor. In 2022, Grace was awarded the Children's Literacy Legacy Award from the American Library Association. Grace currently hosts two podcasts, Book Friends Forever and Kids Ask Authors. Grace lives in Northampton, Massachusetts with her husband, daughter, and five chickens. Twenty twenty four is the year we're focused on finally reducing dinner time overwhelm at Didn't I Just Feed You? And that means making grocery shopping easier and more cost effective, especially when it comes to the foods we all tend to spend the most on, like meat. Enter ButcherBox, where you can count on incredible deals on premium cuts. At ButcherBox, you can choose a curated box or customize your order of 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood to stock your fridge with all the proteins you need for the week, month, or even the year at prices that are hard to come by at the grocery store. That's all your protein shopped for in one shot at great prices delivered to your door with free shipping. Just one change, switching over to ButcherBox, and you guarantee yourself fewer trips to the grocery store and savings that are hard to find at the supermarket. Dinnertime overwhelm be gone. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of a weeknight meal essential, three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, you get $20 off your first order. 
Sign up today at butcherbox.com backslash D-I-J-F-Y and use the code D-I-J-F-Y, short for Didn't I Just Feed You, to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. Is anyone else struggling with what to wear these days? I've been pretty frustrated with getting dressed over the last few months as I've navigated body changes, and some days I quite literally have no idea what to wear. Enter Armoire. Armoire allows you to rent high-quality designer clothing for every occasion. When I signed up, I took a style quiz, and based on my preferences, they offered suggestions that would best match my life. I've been renting clothes from Armoire for a while now, and the more I rent, the more on point the suggestions get. Plus, you send what you wear back, which is a great way to try new styles without waste. Armoire also has such a fantastic range of options. Whether you're planning an outfit for a date night, packing for a conference, or maybe a family event, or just need some updated options for everyday life, you'll be the best-dressed person in the room without ever having to find time for an exhausting shopping day. Right now, Didn't I Just Feed You listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash D-I-J-F-Y. That is armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash D-I-J-F-Y to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Do you ever feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of snacks and meals? We get it. That's why we're excited to share Home Threads, the ultimate solution for creating a stylish and functional family space. At HomeThreads.com, discover furniture that can handle the chaos of family life. From wipeable dining chairs to kitchen tables and light fixtures. Or you can just freshen up your kitchen with trays, counter lamps, decor, and other affordable accents that will help you update your kitchen into a room you love spending time in. Head over to homethreads.com slash D-I-J-F-Y, short for didn't I just feed you, to get a code for 15% off your first order. Because if you're going to be feeding them three times a day, plus snacks, you deserve a home that feeds your style. Home Threads, love where you live. That's homethreads.com backslash D-I-J-F-Y today to get 15% off your first order. I'm going to start with what's going to feel maybe like a really big question, but we don't have to give a really big answer. I just want to set the stage in terms of regional cuisine in China, because sometimes I think people hear Chinese food and there is no real one Chinese food, right? Chinese food isn't a monolith. Different parts of China have really different regional cuisines. You don't have to get into any kind of detail, but can you just speak to that so we can set the stage for our conversation? Sure. So um, I would never, I would never portray myself as a regional Chinese expert at all. But us I either. Though <laughs> I think what maybe you're talking about is how. Here in the United States, uh, we have one idea of Chinese food, and that is actually uh, the mainly Cantonese food. And that is actually just one small region of China. And that is because uh, the first immigrants from China to the United States were from southern China. So and they were the ones that established the Chinese restaurant business here in the United States. So here, Americans think all of Chinese food is the food that these Cantonese or Southern Chinese people created. 
And uh, while Cantonese food is a, a very important part of regional Chinese cuisine, um, it is just a very small part. Uh, in my book, I talk about how, you know, there's there's Boston, there's New York, there's California, <laughs> and the food that we eat is pretty much just like Boston food. Right? So, so yeah. our idea of Chinese food is kind of like somebody from France thinking everybody in the United States eats Boston baked beans and lobster, and that's yes. it. So, <laughs> and so uh, we here in the United States just have a very, very small uh, idea of what Chinese cuisine actually entails. Um, and so really, it's it's quite different. What we call Chinese food is not really Chinese food. <laughs> in that vein, where is your family from and what did you grow up eating? And then can you also share like how you feed your family now through that lens? So uh, my parents were from Taiwan. Um, I was born here in the United States and my mom uh, always served Chinese food for dinner every day, uh, every night. Uh, but we also went to Chinese restaurants. And what was very interesting was even though they were both called Chinese food, um, the food that my mother served was very different than the food that we ate at the Chinese restaurant. And I have to admit that many times <laughs> I liked the restaurant food better. <laughs> I mean, it was sweeter, it was saltier, it was deep fried, you know, like, like so. Yeah. It was also not your mom's. Yes. yes. There's something it, about that, too. And it feels special to go out and eat at a restaurant, you know, all those things. Yes. Uh, so uh, that is interesting how, you know, I equated them both as Chinese food, yet they were both quite different. So how do I feed my family today? Well, what's really interesting is that even though I love Chinese food, I'm not really that great of a chef. Uh, this book... <laughs> <laughs> that I wrote an illustrated Chinese menu. Um, a lot of people ask me, you know, there's not really a lot of recipes in there. In fact, there's only one recipe. And the, and one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why there's not recipes is because um, I don't really cook that much. I eat at a restaurant, which is why it's called Chinese menu. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we actually have a little family tradition where every Sunday night we order at a Chinese restaurant. And so that's kind of our happy, happy tradition of uh, Chinese food here. Though we do eat, you know, occasional Chinese food, you know, we have the rice and all those things <laughs> and the, the nori seaweed and things like that. So, but it's pretty simple compared to what my mom used to make and compared to what you get at a restaurant. Are there certain things that you guys order all the time or what are the favorites? <laughs> what are yes. the favorite dishes <laughs> off of the Chinese menu? So interestingly, uh, my daughter and husband really love the sweet and sour chicken. That's their favorite. Um, there's something about having the pineapple and the and the yeah. chicken. Like they really so love good. that. We always get chicken fried rice. We always get dumplings. I kind of go back and forth between the mushu pork and the kung pao chicken. So like there's a couple dishes that keep like kind of change week by week. But the sweet and sour chicken seems to be the one, at least for the past Five months. That seems to be the seems to be the mainstay for my my the rest of my family. <laughs> I have to tell favorite. you guys that on Instagram this morning, this very morning, I saw a post 
with a guy wearing a t-shirt that in big letters said, I hate dumplings. And then in smaller letters, it said, no, I, no, I don't. Can you imagine? Question mark, exclamation point. <laughs> it's like, no, joking. I can't imagine. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's the most like craziest thing you could imagine someone saying. <laughs> In exploring the fables and stories that are within Chinese menu, did you find that there was one dish, either like Americanized Chinese food or Chinese food, that really speaks to the story of those Cantonese immigrants coming and creating the Chinese restaurant business in the United States? Yeah, I think probably the one that really epitomizes Chinese food in the United States is probably the chop suey story, mainly because it is so rooted in history. Now, many historians don't believe that this is actually how chop suey was invented, but there's so many, so many details and trappings of the story that are really historical. So uh, basically, that story is how, um, you know, Chinese immigrants came here to the United States uh, to look for gold, you know, gold mountain. They came to California looking for gold. But then when they came to California, uh, basically all the gold was gone. And so many of them, most of them, almost all of them were had no money. They had they had spent all their money on the passage to get to the United States. They didn't even have enough money to go back home. And so they had to eke out a living here in the United States any way they could um, to survive. And one way that they found was to open up restaurants. And they opened up Chinese restaurants because that was the kind of cooking that they were familiar with. And that was the kind of cooking they knew how to do. And um, as they opened up these Chinese restaurants, they had to make a lot of changes in order to survive. One was uh, like they had to change their ingredients to what was available here in the United States. Another thing that also had long term repercussions is that to get people to try their Chinese food, they had to price their food quite cheaply, uh, very, very inexpensively. Uh, that was why uh, they were able to thrive because people realized they could get a whole meal at a Chinese restaurant versus at another place. They would only get like a, a teeny appetizer for the same price. The repercussions of that has been really hard because here in the United States, we have decided there's a kind of a stigma that Chinese food is cheap food. That um, and because we think it's cheap food, it has a stigma. We uh, don't realize how difficult it is to prepare. It's just as difficult as, say, French food, and it has just as rich and uh, long and lovely of a history as many other food cultures that we we admire. Um, which ho- which is one of the things I hope this book helps dispel. But the story of chop suey. I, I went on a little tangent there. Sorry. <laughs> no, it was the story of chop suey is that. Um, these Chinese immigrants came and they opened these restaurants in order to survive. But there was a lot of hostility towards them, um, mainly because overt racism, because they looked so much different than uh, those from the Western world, the Europeans that came. Um, And also because uh, they were willing to work so much cheaper. So they Mm. were kind of surviving where maybe some of the others, uh, other, other immigrants were not. And so they were victims of a lot of violence. Uh, so a lot of Chinese immigrants had to be very, very careful. And all of this background ties into the invention of chop suey, because the story of chop suey goes that one night, late at night, after a Chinese restaurant tour had closed his shop, 
a group of drunk, probably European miners, came stumbling to his restaurant and demanded to be fed. And um, the Chinese restaurateur, the chef, knew better than to anger a group of drunk miners. And so he let them in and said, yes, I'll, uh, I'll make you dinner. And so they demanded food. They were being very uh, coarse, very rude, very demanding, very angry. And he rushed into the kitchen to make them some kind of meal. And that's when he realized that he had no ingredients for a meal. He had used everything up that day and there was and the food delivery was coming the next morning and he had nothing to make them. And they were getting angrier and angrier out in the dining room. And so in a fit of desperation, he took his scrap barrel, basically his trash food, and he quickly put it in a wok and stir fried it in a sauce and served that. And these drunk miners, they must have been very drunk, <laughs> loved like, it. Delicious. They loved it so much. And they asked what it was. And um, the the restaurateur, uh, probably as this secret act of rebellion, and mm-hmm. knew that they would not understand what uh, he was saying, what it was in Chinese. Uh, he said, oh, it's tsui, which means odd scraps in Chinese. Oh. <laughs> and of course, the miners like, great, chop suey. And so that's, and they say that is how chop suey was invented. <laughs> wow. That it was just these odd scraps that a desperate Chinese chef put together for these drunk miners. And now, like I said, most food historians say that's probably not what happened and that chop suey actually does have roots in real Chinese cuisine. It's not just uh, these scraps that somebody threw together. But I do think that that's a really interesting story and it kind of shows the plight of uh, Chinese immigrants at the mm-hmm. time and, and Chinese cuisine at the time. I just have to pause for a minute and say that, Grace, you are such a great storyteller because your book is full of stories like these. But now, even though I've gone through it, I need you to read it to me. (laughs) I love that. Okay, so I want to go back to what you were saying, because I think that this is a through line with a lot of different cuisines where immigrants bring their food to the United States and then the cuisine kind of morphs into something new that's related, that's adjacent. Uh, We see this with a lot of American Mexican cuisine. People have to use what's the ingredients that are available to them here. And that doesn't always align with what was available to them back in their homeland. Exactly. It's different than today where you can get online and get almost any ingredient (laughs) you need, you know, shipped to you from wherever You know, you touch on in the book, not just the ingredients and the dishes and how those dishes sort of morphed into something new, but also that the table at the Chinese restaurant is different and is an evolution of this same sort of process. Can you talk to us about that? Because I just loved that. Like, how do the tables at American Chinese restaurants look different? How do they come to be and how do they look different than the table at your home as a first generation Chinese American and maybe even the tables back in China and restaurants back in China? Sure. So, you know, traditional Chinese cuisine and the way that my mom would serve dinner was that we'd all sit down and there everybody had a bowl of rice and then there was like three or four different dishes on the table plus a soup. And that's how we ate every night, you know. And so really the main course was your rice and those dishes that you had on the table uh the the meat dishes the vegetable dishes those were kind of like the side dishes that you added to your rice to to help give it more flavor 
And also, um, traditionally, there, you know, we always have water at a restaurant, you know, or something to drink. Uh, but actually, they didn't have that many beverages. They didn't have beverages with their meals in uh, in traditional Chinese cuisine. They always had soup. That was your beverage. That's what the liquid that you drank. So those were the kind of traditional Chinese way of eating. Um, but that's changed quite a lot here in the United States because uh, when Chinese uh, immigrants opened up their restaurants, they realized that Western people had a specific way of eating. They they like to have appetizers. They like to have side <laughs> dishes. They considered the main course not this this um, maybe bland. I'm putting that in, in <laughs> quotes. This bland starch, but the, like the proteins, the main mm-hmm. course. You know, and they like to have a dessert and all of those things. Those were not part of traditional Chinese cuisine, and so uh, restaurateurs hurriedly tried to fit parts of their cuisine to make those kind of um, entries. And so my book is actually separated just like a Chinese menu where it's appetizers, side orders, uh, chef specials, just like how we would eat it here in the United States. And um, the reason why I did that is because I wanted to show how these foods have changed. So Chinese restaurateurs knew that Westerners wanted appetizers, right? And so they kind of were like, okay, what can we serve as an appetizer? And so what we consider appetizers, dumplings, right? Uh, spring rolls, those are actually festival foods, right? They, mm. they took their special festival foods. That. Like spring rolls are called spring rolls because in China, they eat them at the spring festival. You know, uh, dumplings are something that they eat mainly only at Lunar New Year. I mean, now they eat them all the time, but mm-hmm. <laughs> traditionally, like it was at Lunar New Year. So uh, Chinese restaurateurs took these special foods that, okay, well, we'll have that as, we'll have that as the appetizer. And then they realized that what they considered the main course, the staple food, the noodles, the uh, rice, that these Westerners did not see that as the main course. So that became side orders and their meat dishes, the meat dishes, the ones that they considered side orders, those were the ones that the Westerners were focused on. So, okay, that was the main course. So things got shifted around quite a bit here in the United States. So the way we eat Chinese food is very different than how traditionally people ate Chinese food. It's so fascinating. And and do you know if restaurants in China have been influenced? American Chinese food is so popular now. Has it had any influence? And there's, I imagine, there's a lot of back and forth in terms of travel and immigration and, you know, the internet. So has American Chinese food influenced modern food in China and the way people are eating there now? I think so. I mean, because, you know, restaurants now in China, they're they're so international. So if you go to a Chinese restaurant, um, you'll see that they've kind of broken broken things up in that order. But I do think that if you were going to eat at somebody's home, um, it would not be like that. But I mean, honestly, we don't eat like that at home normally either. Like, here's your appetizer. Yes. Your- <laughs> so, so I think it's kind of, I think that uh, internationally, we've kind of understood that restaurant, eating at a restaurant has this kind of like hierarchy of foods now. I want my sons to listen to this interview because I grew up in a Greek home where we have metze. So it's a different kind of eating, but it is also like I grew up with lots of different dishes, at least when my grandmother was cooking, not so much my mom. 
<laughs> with lots of different things on the table. So when we order Chinese food, one of the things that I love, I'm like, oh, like, okay, let's get one beef and broccoli to share and one general sauce chicken. And my kids are like, no, like they want their beef and broccoli. And they, like they want to eat the whole thing just to themselves. I'm like, that's not right. Like, yeah. Let's get a bunch of stuff and share. Yeah, I, I Family style is a big thing in Chinese cuisine, um, both at home and yeah. at a restaurant. Also, I think that speaks to Stacey's boys' appetites more than anything. <laughs> that they're it's like, no, great. I want the whole order to myself, so I feel full. <laughs> this episode is brought to you with support from Whole Foods. As our resident Greek girl, I am a sucker for Mediterranean flavors and want you to taste the Mediterranean, too. Go to Whole Foods Market now and save on regionally inspired products through March 19th. Find sales on animal welfare certified meat, including boneless, skinless, air-chilled chicken breast, bone-in beef short ribs, ground lamb, and more. Save on whole bronzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon. And stock up on Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and if you're over 21, Wines from Spain, Greece, and Italy. Grab your ingredients and experiment with family-friendly Mediterranean cuisine today. Think Greek-style ground lamb pitas, lemony oven roasted chicken, or bronzino, or instant pot short ribs braised in wine. All simple and delicious. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Gwena Lathlin, but you probably know me as Mama Cusses on TikTok and Instagram. And I'm Tori Phantom, also known as Tori Phantom on TikTok and Instagram. And we want to tell you about our brand new podcast, Childproof, from Betches Media. Parenting is hard, but it's even harder when you feel alone. That's why we created Childproof, a parenting chat show for when you're craving adult conversation and are surrounded by tiny humans. And on Childproof, we'll try to figure out the do's, don'ts, and what ifs of modern parenthood. We have been friends for years, so we want to use this show as an opportunity to compare notes, share stories, and grow as parents at the same time. So tune in every Wednesday as we share our experiences through a mix of one-on-one -on -one conversations, guest appearances, and input from you, our listeners. That's right. You, you personally, where you are right now, you can be a listener. Subscribe right now wherever you're listening. That's Childproof from Betches Media. Speaking of home eating and home cooking, you know, We've gotten a lot of requests over time to talk about Chinese food because we have listeners who are very interested in cooking. And so it was really interesting to hear sort of like the paradox of we think of Chinese food as cheap and that's why it is eaten out a lot and it's like a great, oh, we just need a quick dinner. But then we hear from our listeners that they feel intimidated by cooking Chinese mm -hmm. food at home. And that's such just a very inter interesting paradox. But I'm so curious as someone who is first generation Chinese American, what do you recommend to people when they're like, oh, what Chinese food dish should I start cooking at home? I would start with the simplest stuff. I mean, that's basically what I stick to because, yeah. um, I mean, Chinese food is quite complicated, honestly. It's a lot of chopping. <laughs> it's a lot of yeah. very hot walks, <laughs> you know, like that you need to make sure is the right temperature. Like it's a lot of stir frying. So I mainly stick with like, it's very easy. Like if you have a rice cooker to make rice and um, and it's very easy to make things like stir uh, to make fried rice. I mean, fried rice yes. is basically was created um, as a way for 
housewives at the time to re to reuse their leftovers, you know? So in fact, leftover rice is considered the correct rice to use for fried rice. Like you shouldn't use fresh rice. It should be like rice that's like at least a day old. And so um, I would suggest going that route, like perhaps uh, get look what you have in the refrigerator of leftovers um, and chop it up really small and um, make some fried rice. I think that's the easiest way you can go. And then slowly get a recipe book and then move your way up from there. <laughs> I second that. I think that's great. I'm also curious, do you ever cook noodles? Rice and noodles are two ingredients that I think of as being very significant. Not yes. just in Chinese cuisine, but in Chinese culture. Yeah, they're very, very important. So southern China uh, is mainly rice eating. And mm -hmm. uh, most people think, uh, you know, white rice has become ubiquitous with uh, Chinese food because that's what the Cantonese people had. That was that southern China, which most of the first immigrants uh, to the United States were from. So uh, we all think white rice and, and Chinese food. And that's... 50% true because because uh, the northern part of China was mainly noodles and that's what they ate yes. almost all the time. They were more of a wheat culture up there because of the climate. I actually prefer eating noodles, but um, I make more rice. You just eat <laughs> I think that's so great. And we, I, I also like really appreciate and I think our listeners to your perspective as a non cook because yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It's a hard and it's a lot of work. And especially like feeding a family is yeah. a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and also that we can still appreciate the cultural significance and stories. We don't have to be avid home cooks to go deep. Like you don't have to be making some complicated dish to bring some of these stories home to your kids and to use food as a conduit for understanding yeah culture and stories of immigration and, and cultural appreciation. Yeah. I mean, in my book, I mean, there's just a story about rice. I mean, all you need is a rice cooker and yes. uh, you serve your white rice and then you tell the story, the origin story of rice, which includes like a nine tailed dog and the kids are fascinated. And all of a sudden yeah. that, that quote unquote bland rice becomes really super delicious. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I have, without comment, been using the term American Chinese food throughout this interview, which is something that I learned from your book. I'm hoping that you can share a little bit about why you made the switch from calling it Chinese American to American Chinese food. So this is a really interesting thing because this was actually pointed out to me by my copy editor uh, because I was calling it Chinese American food, too. Uh, because, you know, that's we always talk about Chinese American, Asian American. So I was like Chinese American food. But she actually pointed it out to me that the food I was talking about was American Chinese food. Um, so that means that it was Chinese food that has been influenced by America. Now, Chinese American food would be American food that was influenced by Chinese culture. Oh, so like oh, we'd say, yeah. let's say hot dogs and hamburgers are what we call American food. What we would say Chinese American food would be that hot dog with a Chinese sauce on it, you know, like or a special stir fry hamburgers relish, you know, like. Yeah. Um, so that would be Chinese American food. What we are talking about 
is Chinese food that has been influenced by America. So it's American Chinese food. I love that. And you know, the distinction you're making is reminding me, I traveled to Peru several years ago, and there's an entire cuisine there called Chifa. There were apparently a lot of Chinese immigrants to Peru, and Chifa is Peruvian food that was influenced by the Chinese immigrants. So they were taking traditionally Peruvian dishes and then using some of the ingredients or techniques that they brought with them from China. Yes, so, so that would be called Chinese, Chinese American food. <laughs> Correct. Right. Exactly. Oh, I love that. That's so great. MSG has become a big topic of conversation. And it, it really occurred to me as you were talking about how immigrants were trying to make this food as flavorful and as appealing as possible, because basically their livelihoods, you know, it depended on it. These were their businesses. So MSG is an ingredient that, like salt, makes foods more delicious. And then I, and I don't, I certainly don't know enough of the story, but the basic thing that happened was it became demonized, <laughs> like a, that this was a chemical, it was unhealthy to the point where some, you know, Chinese restaurants in the United States were saying no MSG used to distinguish themselves. And now we've learned that there's really nothing at all wrong with MSG. And we're starting to unpack a lot of the racism and discrimination that are part of how MSG became demonized. Is there anything more to the story or did this come up as you were doing your research? You know, I did read a little bit about that, but that was not the focus of my book. But it does show, it does show what happened really. It shows the rise and fall of Chinese cuisine mm -hmm. in the United States. And basically, when Chinese cuisine started becoming too popular, you know, uh, we, it was almost like uh, other restaurants, other like there was a wave of trying to make sure it wasn't too popular. Like so, so they brought out this MSG scare. You know, like there's so many things that we do as a society that's very insidious uh, mm -hmm. to kind of tamp down. Uh, I guess the power of the powerless. You know, like uh, we do yes. that all the time. Not just with. I mean, but this is a perfect example of that. You know, and it's ways that we don't even realize that we are being used. Uh, our fears are being used just so that we can uh, disempower people. Yeah. And that food can become a, a tool for that. That yeah. disempowering process uh -huh. is really interesting and something that I think is relevant in a lot of different ways, not just in the story of uh, American Chinese cuisine. Yeah. I had a thought, too, when you were telling the story of chop suey and how now historians say that that couldn't be exactly what happened. And I understand it's all, all like a long game of telephone and who's telling the story. But I wondered if there was some retelling or reshaping of the story because Americans didn't like the thought of being fooled or fed, as you said, a quote unquote trash and enjoying it. I actually think it's the opposite. I think okay. that it was an attempt to make chop suey uh, because what happened, it's kind of a little bit like the MSG story. Yeah. Chop suey mm -hmm. became so popular 
right? It, like there's chop suey houses, Chinese yeah. restaurateurs were really getting a foothold because of the popularity of, of chop suey. People had to eat chop suey to show that they were like culture, you know, and it was almost like they didn't want this to continue. Like, so they had to prove that chop suey wasn't really Chinese, you know, that chop suey is really trash, you know, like, and like, you're getting fooled. You don't want to eat at a Chinese restaurant. You're just getting fooled like that. Uh, so I actually think it is closer to the MSG narrative. That's so fascinating. I want to make sure we ask one more question about the book because it is incredibly beautiful. And I think it really speaks like one of the things I love so much about Chinese menu is the way that these stories and the beautiful illustrations connect us to food without having to put this onus on parents of like, oh, you have to cook something to have a a food connection with your kids. I am curious, though, if you want to share what is the one recipe that is in the book and why is it the one recipe that's included? (laughs) Sure. The one recipe that's in the book is uh, scallion pancakes. Mm -hmm. And my reason why it's the one recipe in the book is mainly because what I was talking about earlier in our podcast about how the food my mother served at the dinner table was very different than the food that was served at the Chinese restaurant. But there was a couple of crossovers. One was the dumplings and the other was um, the other was scallion pancakes. She didn't make them often, but we made them often enough, maybe like a handful of times that I remembered that she did make them at home. And it was one of the things that was very similar that we ate at home that was also really similar when we ate it at the Chinese restaurant. So I felt like that was a recipe that I could include with confidence. (laughs) (laughs) And is it something that you make at home? We made it once or twice, but you know, it's it's deceptively simple, right? Because the ingredients are very simple Mm -hmm. and you read the instructions, it seems like they shouldn't be that hard, (laughs) but it's actually quite time consuming. It's like, and, you know, you've got to coil everything and roll, roll it out, everything. So um, we don't make it that often. I've only made it once with my daughter, I think. It reminds me a little bit of baking bread with kids. We fairly recently published an episode on this. But I do think that it's beautiful that even though you've only made it once, I'm, I, I'm hopeful that you'll make it at least one more time, that this, just because I love the idea that it was so significant to you, that you can sort of pass that along. And sometimes these kinds of traditions really only require it being important to you and passing those stories along and then doing it a couple of times. And then maybe your daughter will make scallion pancake with her family one day. (laughs) Does your daughter have an interest in cooking? I'm always curious about that for all of our guests. It's not too much. We do do the traditional dumplings every year. Um, so dumplings is actually probably the one that we've really made into into the tradition much more than scallion pancakes. And we do, um, it's usually the Lunar New Year foods. There's a story in the book about the um, rice cakes. So we do the rice cakes. And so I think she's more interested, honestly, it's probably my influence. She's interested in the Chinese culture and the Chinese history and the stories behind the food more than actually the food because she does love to hear the stories and she actually goes i i have her parents of her friends said oh your daughter told my my <laughs> kid this such an interesting story about about rice <laughs> you know things like that <laughs> i love that i love that 
It speaks to the power Power. of how we influence our kids without us trying to. And and we, it's so funny that I didn't ask the question, oh, does your daughter have an interest in being an illustrator or a writer or a podcast host? (laughs) We often get the question of like, oh, your kids must love to cook or you must love cooking with your kids. And the answer is like, not always. The things that they're interested in about our work are things that we don't think to share with them or push on them. Well, I think also the power of storytelling in every aspect is just universally appealing. And the way that you tell stories around food grace is so beautiful in this book and in so many of your other books. So thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Stacy. I really value that Grace does not identify as a cook. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really actually important when we talk about any kind of cuisine, but also cultural cuisines, because I think sometimes in the food media world, there can be this lens or this narrative that many first generation kids are trying to hold on to their family's identity and heritage. And I I think that there's actually much more diverse perspective than food media like even allows us to see. Yeah, totally. I agree with you. And it also makes me happy to remember as someone who's a cook myself that being able to explore food and culture and stories doesn't require us to get in the kitchen with our kids. Right. There's this story. There's such this storytelling aspect to what Grace does, obviously, as an author, but also even as a podcast host, even as a guest here, we can share food without having to put in the labor of cooking. Totally. Which is why I think everyone should grab this book because most everybody is going to take their kids out for Chinese food at some point, probably at some point soon. And to make these connections and have these stories to draw on. I think really enriches the experience. I know we're like still a week, few weeks out from the gift guide, but I do think that this book would make yes. a really great gift too. Okay, Megan, before we sign off, I got on Instagram this morning before we hopped on with Grace and I asked people what their favorite American Chinese dishes were. Do you want to hear I do. the most you know popular? I do. Yes. So I'll tell you the most popular. We're not going to go through everything. Beef and broccoli. It's all the hits, guys. Orange chicken, which you and I didn't mention, General Sow's chicken. I wish we had, I'd really love to learn. Again, maybe this is an uncut gem. Do you know the difference between General Sow's chicken and orange chicken? They are different. I don't. They do have different flavors, but they're very, they have a lot of overlap for me. Yes. There's a story about General Sow's chicken in Grace's book. And then lo mein. There's also, Grace talks about lo mein in her book. Those sound like, all the essential favorites. And many of these are included in Grace's book. So we hope that you will go check it out. Maybe buy a couple copies. And then come on over to our Don't I Just Feed You listeners community where you can tell us what you thought about this episode. You can ask recipe questions. You can get meal planning inspiration all for free. Visit didn'tijustfeedyou.com backslash community. Follow us on Instagram, where we're at Didn't I Just Feed You. A huge thank you to our producer, Samantha Getzik. I'm Megan. And I'm Stacy. Stay sane and well-fed until next week.
Be sure to subscribe to Didn't I Just Feed You wherever you're listening. And don't forget to rate and review.